Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man of the house was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in, in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all this house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five saves as parched grain and 100 clusters of raisin and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But, when she, but she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face, and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Thank you, Mark. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we uh, are just grateful to know that your justice is perfect and that all of the beauty and splendor and glory that we know in this life 
originated with you, reveals you, and is just a, a glimpse of how wonderful you are. And yet we also know that we live in a world and we participate in a world that is just uh, struck and, 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 and rife with evil. And so, Father, we, we pray that your son's sacrifice would, would do its, its work in our midst and in our hearts this morning as we examine your word. Help us to see you high and lifted up and see the cross of Jesus Christ and and to look above the material things that we enjoy and the temporary pleasures of this life and the pain and the suffering and the evil of now and look toward heaven and set our minds on things above. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the city of Mineral Wells, I think in particular of Emmanuel Baptist Church and Northside Baptist Church as they uh, try to seek your will in terms of finding a new pastor. I pray that you would guide them uh, to the man that you want for them and that you would just cause both of those congregations to thrive, to grow, and to have tremendous influence in our city for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray as well for our own church as we move into a season of, uh, of uh, seeking a, a new associate pastor of youth and children. We pray for Jamie and Kasha Kinman, as they, um, uh, as we consider them, uh, consider Jamie for this role. And uh, Father, I pray that you would prepare them, if this is what you have for us, that you'd prepare Jamie to lead well, and uh, that you would prepare us as a church to partner with him in reaching the next generation. Lord, we know that our time is short, and that soon our children and their children will be the deacons and the Sunday school teachers and the elders and the preachers. And so, Father, we look for that day and we ask for your wisdom in uh, moving toward it. Uh, Father, please bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the evening of July 16th, 1999... An amateur pilot took off from Essex County, New Jersey, along with his wife and his sister-in-law in order to attend a wedding in Massachusetts. He was a relatively inexperienced flyer, licensed to operate an aircraft only in fair weather. He had purchased his Piper Saratoga aircraft just three months before. About an hour later, John F. Kennedy Jr., crashed in the Atlantic Ocean, and was immediately killed. Many of you remember this. The tragic death uh, captured headlines across the nation. A day of joy and celebration for his family had turned in a moment to the unspeakable grief for one of America's most beloved families. And it also became a cautionary tale for amateur pilots all around the world. According to the National Transportation Safety Board, the cause of the trash... Uh, Trash. The, the cause of the crash was, quote, the pilot's failure to maintain control of the airplane during a descent over water at night, which was a result of spatial disorientation. In layman's terms, JFK Jr. lost his sense of up and down, and the airplane spiraled nose down into the water. 
It was a classic example of what flight instructors call a graveyard spiral or a death spiral. Uh, It's rare, but it happens. Tiny variations in wind or atmospheric pressure or weight distribution uh, are always going to lead any aircraft to skew to the left or to the right if not checked. And, And if that skew is left unchecked and left unnoticed, such as in cases where an autopilot system malfunctions and the pilot doesn't realize it, the wing on the outside of the turn is going to be traveling at a slightly greater velocity, and that greater velocity is going to cause greater lift, and so that wing is going to go up a little bit, and the airplane will begin to bank, and, and then that'll cause the turn to be sharper and sharper and sharper until finally the uh, increase of the angle will be so great that the aircraft will begin to rapidly descend. And a pilot's reactions uh, during this few seconds of, uh, of spiral can actually make matters worse. After just a few seconds, the aircraft is pointed downward, the, the, the pilot is hopelessly disoriented, and a crash becomes inevitable. Now, I'm no pilot, and some of you are. Uh, I recognize that... Uh, there are ways to get out of a graveyard spiral that you learn when you learn how to fly. But I imagine it's very, very difficult once you get to a certain point to pull yourself out of a graveyard spiral. It takes training and presence of mind and quick reflexes. On our passage today, we are going to witness a different kind of deadly spiral, a pattern of deadly behavior that is actually self-reinforcing and leads to great destruction. I'm going to call it the Saul spiral uh, because King Saul is really the archetype of this type of behavior. It begins with small compromises and those lead to greater compromises and so on and so forth until a person basically self-destructs and brings other people with him into that destruction. In 1 Samuel 25, we're introduced to Nabal, a man who might as well have been Saul's best friend. He acts exactly like him, and it results in his destruction. But sadly, even our hero, David, almost follows in Saul's footsteps as well. And if it weren't for the beautiful grace and the wisdom of an unlikely intermediary, a woman named Abigail, David would have crashed and burned too. This morning we're going to see that to enter into the Saul spiral is pretty normal for all of us human beings and that breaking out of it is not simple or easy. In fact, there's only one thing that pulls us out of that Saul spiral once we get to a certain point. And in order to understand what that is, I'd like us to examine each of the three main characters in this chapter one by one, Nabal, David, and Abigail. So in the first place, let's take a moment to consider Nabal. Uh, Saul and David, as you know, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, have been playing cat and mouse in the Judean countryside. Uh, Life goes on, though, for the rest of the nation, and our author introduces us to a man who owns a huge livestock operation near where David and his men had been hiding out. He owns 3,000 sheep, excuse me, and 1,000 goats. Even by today's standards, I think that's a lot of animals. I've never... I can't even imagine how many animals that is. But uh, imagine what it would have taken back then to manage that large of an operation without the benefits of trucks and tractors and things like that we have today. Nabal, I'm sure, had dozens, if not hundreds, of slaves and servants. He was incredibly wealthy by the standards of the day. 
And it happens to be sheep shearing time when all the hard work and labor of the year come to a head and, and uh, the, the property owners of, some, uh, of a large ranch like that would have been expecting a huge profit. This would have been a time of great feasting and celebration. And so following the customs of the day in the ancient Near East, David and his men come to Nabal's uh, property and they ask him politely with respect for a little share in the celebration, especially given how much Nabal had benefited from the presence of David's men uh, during the last several months. But Nabal refuses, and he insults David in the process, and it almost leads to the death of everybody in his entire household. So let's focus on Nabal as a person, his character. Uh, This is one of those instances in the book of 1 Samuel, we're paying attention to the details and the way that our author lays these things out is very, very important. Uh, you'll notice that when talking about Nabal, uh, we didn't read this part earlier in the service, but perhaps you read it earlier this week. Notice how even his own wife, Abigail, in verse 25, describes Nabal. She says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. What does that mean? Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Well, first of all, she calls him a worthless fellow. Does that remind you of anybody? Maybe earlier from the book of 1 Samuel, in chapter 2, we're told that the sons of Eli are worthless fellows, and we, we know what happened to them. They die, and their entire household is cursed, and there's not a man who gets old in the house of Eli after this. So right there, we can already see that Nabal does not have a bright future. But what's this talk about Nabal's name? Uh, Probably his parents uh, gave him a non-Hebrew name. Nabal in other ancient Near Eastern languages could mean various other things. Uh, We're not really sure what their intention was. Originally, I'm sure that, that when he was born and he was zero days old, his mother didn't look at him and say, that fool Nabal, you know. Uh, She probably had other things on her mind. But in Hebrew... Over time, he had begun to live up to the Hebrew meaning of his name. In Hebrew, a Nabal is a fool. That's why Abigail says Nabal is his name and Nebalah is with him. Folly is with him. So Nabal's more than just a random rich guy. He actually represents a whole category of persons. He's not just a Nabal. He's a Nabal. What's Nabal? Uh, Translated fool. Uh, but let's not misunderstand. And Nabal is not just someone who's a few fries short of a Happy Meal, right? You can be a little soft in the head and not be a Nabal. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room to not be a Nabal. You can be a wise person even if you don't have the highest IQ. I hope you all recognize that. That's not what it means to be a Nabal. In fact, Nabal himself was probably pretty clever. You don't run 4,000 head of livestock in the ancient Near East by being a dummy. No, a Nabal is something different. A Nabal, if I can just boil it down, is a person who shows a shocking disregard for their social or relational obligations. That's just the high-level definition of Nabal's name. It's someone who shows a shocking disregard for their social or relational obligations. Uh, Somebody whose behavior is jarringly disrespectful and dishonorable and inconsiderate. They just don't have any regard for anybody else. And and there are all kinds of examples in Scripture of this. But let me just frame it in terms of modern day. What's a a Nabal? A Nabal is like uh, the bratty preteen. 
who munches on snacks and tells loud jokes while visiting the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. Some of you have been there, and you know, like, when you get there, when you're approaching that area of Arlington National Cemetery, you don't eat snacks and tell jokes. You stand there silently and respectfully, and yet some people are Nabals, and they are foolish, and they have a shocking disregard for the occasion. A Nabal is like an entitled teenager who, in front of everybody, uh, yells and screams at her dad in the store, the one who provided her with food and shelter and cared for her from the time that she was a baby because he is asking her to buy uh, new clothes off the clearance rack instead of from the expensive front part of the store. A Nabal is like a spoiled husband who married a woman in her early 20s and enjoyed her youthful beauty, but after she's given her future of her career and literally sacrificed her body to bear and care for his children, tosses her in, uh, tosses her aside and trades her in for somebody else. That's a Nabal. A Nabal is like an arrogant first-year seminary student who lectures his godly, gray-haired small group leader because he's gotten an A on a couple of theology papers. You see the, the picture that I'm painting here? Somebody who is a Nabal is a fool in the sense that they have this shocking disregard for the state of things as they actually are. They have an over, uh, overactive sense of self-importance, and they have an underactive sense of the worth and the worthiness of everybody else. That's a Nabal. And this is his problem. He's being greeted respectfully by the anointed king of the people of God. And he says, who? Who Who is the son of David? Like, who does this guy think he is? Who does he think he's dealing with? He's dealing with God's king, and he is being disrespectful. So how do you know you're dealing with a Nabal? Uh, Consider the the characteristics of of Nabal. Uh, First of all, his possessions define him as a person. His possessions define him as a person. Did you notice how in verses 2 and 3, before we even learn of his name, we find out about his possessions? Uh, shall I take, and then later on, he, when he's talking about uh, this to, to David's men, this is what's on his mind. He says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers, notice the emphasis, and give it to men I know not where they come from? Commentator Dale Rolf Davis quotes scholar Walter Brueggemann in this connection. He says, Nabal's possessions precede his own person. His life is determined by his property. Nabal lives to defend his property, and he dies in an orgy, enjoying his property. Only after being told of his riches are we told his name. Do you know anybody like that? They're defined by their possessions more than by their person. Secondly, Nabal is unapproachable and unteachable. We learn in verse 17 that a servant goes to Nabal's wife instead of to his own boss. And why is that? Because he is such a worthless fellow that no one can speak to him about anything. You can't even talk to him. We're all about to die and nobody can even talk to to Nabal. What is it like to be a Nabal? He's unapproachable and he's unteachable. One of the main characteristics of a wise person is that they're teachable, right? Like, what does Proverbs chapter 1 say? Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And yet Nabal has arrived at a point in his life where he doesn't want to listen to anybody. Thirdly, Nabal has no control over his appetite. His wife saves the lives of everybody in the household, and she comes home, and what does she find her husband doing? While everybody else is in danger, what has Nabal been doing? He's been getting drunk at a party. 
He's out of control. Having shut out interactions with others, he's learned the habit of gazing into his own navel and listening to the cravings of his belly. And because he's preoccupied with his possessions, because he doesn't listen, because he is consumed with filling his stomach, he is unable to protect his family, and he is ultimately doomed. So what are we seeing in the life of of Nabal? We're seeing evil gone to seed. Nabal represents somebody who, they didn't just start out bad, they kept going, and he's at the end of his life. He's at this place in his life where he's gathered some possessions, he's got some power and some influence, he's got reputation as a man of influence in the world, and he's allowed those things to get to his head, and so he doesn't have regard for anybody else, he's not teachable, he just listens to his own belly, and he is ultimately doomed. Uh, This is the Saul spiral. This is the way that all human beings go. Uh, A rebellious heart fueled by unchecked power is the engine driving the Saul spiral, and it is as old as the the Garden of Eden. You see, let's just take a a zoom out at, at the big picture of the Bible story. God intends for human beings, according to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, God intends for human beings like you and me to actually share with him the rule of the world, to have dominion over the earth. But ever since Adam sinned, that human identity, that job that God has given us, we take it and we twist it. And so when when we get a little bit of the gift that God intends for us to have, we get a little bit of that power, a little bit of that influence, we take that power, we take our possessions, and we begin to use them not to build others up, but to actually tear other people down and build ourselves up. This is the way that all human beings work. The power, the world is going to tell you that, the, that power is the problem. You give somebody power, then that's a problem. That they, they become a dangerous person. No. What happens is power exposes the problem that's already there. Power is not the problem. Our hearts are the problem. And the power that we wield, whether that's the power of political power, whether that's the power of possessions, whether that's just influence other peop- over other people, that's... That power that we wield, it just makes our sinful tendencies all the more destructive and, and devastating. King Saul, uh, as we've seen, he's a, he was a man of power, political power, but he was completely given to his sinful desires and his impulses and his passions. He was defined by what was external, his stature, his title, rather than by his relationship to God. He was uncontrollable in his passions. He became unapproachable, unteachable, and his friend Nabal is doing the same thing. He's exactly like Saul, just further down the same path. He doesn't wield political power, but he's gotten very comfortable wielding the power of wealth. He's become unapproachable, unteachable, unable to control his passions. He's deep into the Saul spiral of death. So here's the point, folks. Without somebody to take the controls, without somebody to put their foot on the rudder, we all are going to go this way. We all, apart from the grace of God, we're all on that Saul spiral. Now, you may be very early in the process. You might not even feel that you're drifting to the right or to the left, but the truth of the matter is, it may seem subtle, but if we go unchecked, apart from the grace of God, it, and you're, you're, you're going to be on that Saul spiral. And if you've got a measure of influence or power or authority or wealth, then that's going to be like fuel driving that spiral to go even faster and hurt more people. Nabal is the 
personification of this. He can't pull out. He's the personification of perverted power left unchecked. And he's, he's really a specter of what any of us will become apart from the gracious intervention of God. So that's Nabal. And perhaps you recognize a little bit of yourself in Nabal or somebody else. Uh, but we hasten on to look at our next character. Uh, that's not even the most disheartening part of the story. Because what actually happens is Nabal, in his foolishness, begins to actually rub off on David. So let's look secondly at David. Up until now, the coverage in 1 Samuel on David has been almost exclusively positive. Uh, He isn't the king people ask for. He's the king after God's own heart. He's uh, leading, even though he's not the king yet, he's been leading wisely. He's gracious to other people. He's walked through trials, he's been tested, and he's shown that he's worth, uh, worthy of being called the king. But if any of us may have been tempted to place David on too high of a pedestal, what we're going to begin to see in this chapter is that the cracks in the base of that pedestal are, are, are beginning to widen. David is not the second Adam toward which he is pointing. He is pointing us toward the second Adam, but he's not ultimately going to be that second Adam. He's not going to be the Savior. So look at what happens with David. First of all, Samuel has died. Uh, We saw that in in verse 1. That's a clue in and of itself. So Samuel dies and his restraining influence is lifted away from both Saul and David. And we're left asking, okay, well, what are Saul and David going to do now that Samuel is dead? And notice that immediately David's approach to evil is going to change here in this passage. Uh, Remember what happened in the previous chapter. What did Saul admit to in 1 Samuel chapter 24? He said, David... You, I've paid you evil, and you've repaid me good. But notice what David's willing to do here in chapter 25. He reaches out to Nabal. Nabal insults him. And instead of returning good in response to evil, just like he had done just a few days before, David wants revenge. He isn't willing to wait on the Lord's timing or the Lord's justice anymore. He wants Nabal and everything that is important to him dead. In other words, David, what what he's about to do, he's about to take that Saul spiral. To another level, this is what we do. We use the power God allows us to wield, that that God intends for us to wield, and instead of doing that to build up, we wield that power to tear down, and then when somebody turns around and does it to us, we actually want to get them back, and we do so in a disproportionate way, and these things become kind of feeding back on on themselves, and the cycle goes on and on. What I mean is that David doesn't just go after the person who is to blame. He doesn't attempt to respond proportionately. He says basically, hey, that man was disrespectful to me. He insulted me. So instead of just, you know, I don't know, insulting him back, you know, a proportionate response, so to speak, he wants to kill him and everybody that is in his household, all the men. And he actually, when he talks about this, he actually curses. Uh, Your translation, if you have a modern translation, uh, softens the language. Uh, If you have a King James translation, it's a little bit more salty. Because David actually curses Nabal. So if David kills all of Nabal's people, then what's going to happen to David? It might not happen right away, but somebody at some point, if he does this, if he goes through with this, somebody at some point is going to retaliate against him, and then he's going to want to retaliate back, And the cycle is going to keep going until all of Israel is uh, destroyed. 
Injustices breed greater injustices, and this is the way of the world. This is the soft spiral. This is humanity apart from the grace of God. When we take our God-given ability and our God-given authority, and we use it to tear down instead of to build up, and we combine it with a perverse, self-centered, overactive sense of personal justice, then the cure for injustice against us becomes worse than the disease. And we perpetuate evil until it reaches a fever pitch. And by the way, folks, this is God's king. This is David we're talking about. This is the man after God's own heart, left to himself just months after Saul's massacre of the priest at the city of Nob. David is about to do the exact same thing. So here's what the Bible makes very clear for us, folks. There is something seriously wrong with all of us. Like, if this is true of David, how am I going to escape unless somebody from the outside comes in and I'm changed? Someone has to rescue me from this. Human beings are pricelessly valuable and breathtakingly powerful, but hopelessly twisted. And the result of this toxic combination is unimaginable suffering. And we see this in the world, and you perhaps have seen this in your own family and maybe in your own life. If you think you're exempt... You're wrong. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are like that airplane veering to the left or veering to the right, and we, we can't pull ourselves out of the spiral unless somebody comes in and changes us. The real question, though, is when we find ourselves slipping into the Saul spiral, when we find ourselves begin to use our God-given abilities and our God-given authority to tear down rather than to build up. When we're repaying people evil for evil, the, the real question is, what in the world can pull us out of that spiral? What, what is there that will change us? And to answer that question, we need to turn our attention from Nabal and David to our third character, and that's Abigail. Abigail. Uh, the more I've studied this text, the more fascinating I find this woman Abigail think about this think about Abigail's uniqueness nowhere in the entire Bible is anyone described is any woman described in this way she was discerning and beautiful no one else is described that way not only that but when she speaks to David and, and Mark just read the first sentence of her speech but when she speaks to David in verses 24 through 31 her speech is the longest speech given by a woman in the entire Bible, by far. So Abigail is really exceptional. Uh, the, the divinely inspired author wants us to really pay close attention to what she says. And she's basically the opposite of her husband. He is stingy, she's generous. He's a fool, she's wise and discerning. He puts his household in danger for his own pleasure and his own pride, and she puts herself in danger to save her household. And it's the actions of Abigail that turn things around. So let's back up and talk about how this happened. Nabal insults David. David wants to retaliate against Nabal and his entire household. He immediately reacts with this plan to kill him. And when Abigail finds out from one of her husband's servants, she rushes into action. She prepares a feast and brings this feast to David's army and meets them in the way before they're able to do anything wrong. Now keep in mind, Abigail has no idea what David's going to do. Uh, can you imagine being in her shoes... There's 400 guys with swords marching toward your house to kill you and 
I mean, everybody, for all you know, to kill everybody in your house. And Abigail, instead of running and hiding, she takes these things and she brings them to David and then she gets down off of the donkey that she's riding and she kneels on the ground and she puts her face on the ground and humbles herself and puts her own life at risk. She says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. She begs for mercy. She blesses David. In fact, I would go so far as to say... Uh, that her speech amounts to a prophetic blessing over David's reign. She blesses him. She says, may, the, may all the enemies of David be like this Nabal. And actually, David says later on, after her speech concludes, he says, it was the Lord who sent you to me to protect me from committing murder. So Abigail takes the initiative. She acts on behalf of her household. She's courageous. She's self-sacrificing. She's righteous in her judgment. She's willing to tell the truth about her wicked husband. She uses her words to bless. In a word, if I can sum it up, what Abigail does is truly beautiful. She beautifully sacrifices herself. In other words, it's not just that Abigail is physically attractive. Yes, the text says that that is the case. It's what she does, though, that is truly beautiful. The point is that her actions of self-sacrifice and service and bravery and courage are what constitutes true beauty. And it is this beautiful self-sacrifice and only this that pulls David out of the Saul spiral, and it gives us the answer to our question. What is it that is going to take humanity out of the Saul spiral? What is it that's going to take you from being someone who uses your power and your influence and the gifts that God has given you to tear down instead of to build up, what is it that's going to take you out of that spiral downwards? Here's what it is. The only hope for people caught in the Saul spiral is the selfless sacrifice of great beauty. The only hope for people who are on the Saul spiral, for people who are using the gifts God has given them to tear down, the only people who, are, who have any hope for for their tendency to return evil for evil is when they see great beauty selflessly sacrifice. Abigail, beautiful, wise, selfless, lays down her own life to bear the guilt of others, and when she does, it actually transforms and rescues not only the innocent people in Nabal's household, but it transforms David himself. By the way, uh, if you're here today, and you're skeptical about the teachings of the Bible because you wonder whether an ancient book can have anything of relevance to say to modern people. Think about this story and how wonderful it is to see uh, a woman like this raised up as an example not only of, of goodness but of, of what Christ is going to do later on. I, I mean... Do you think it was normal for a woman to receive this kind of honor and respect among ancient Near Eastern historians 3,000 years ago? Uh, no. And yet here we have, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, this ancient book is presenting us with a woman that both men and women can, can respect and want to imitate, and ultimately she points us to the loving self-sacrifice of the most beautiful, magnificent person ever to exist, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's wonderful. The Son of God, the most beautiful being in existence, laid aside his glories and his splendor, and he gave up his very life in order to break the curse of sin and to rescue the guilty. And even though he became despised, 
even though he became rejected of men, having no form or comeliness that we should desire him, that sacrifice is beautiful and splendid and marvelous and wonderful. And it is the only thing, folks, the only thing that can pull us up out of that Saul spiral downward. You want to know why you're caught in the Saul spiral? You want to know why the power and the influence and the possessions that God has given you, you've been using them to tear people down? You want to know why when people wrong you, you feel like you have to wrong them? There are two very simple reasons why. Either, number one, you haven't seen the beauty of Christ, or number two, you don't know about his sacrifice. That's it. Because the moment you truly see the the wonder and the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you just you recognize that he's the one that made everything that is good in this world, that invented all of it. And you see that he gave all of that glory up to die the shameful death of the cross so that you could be saved. The moment that that hits you, it changes you. It transforms you. So I wonder this morning, are you enabled? Are you selfish and unteachable and out of control? Is your life defined by the power you wield, the possessions that you grip so firmly? But if you could just see the beauty of the Lord and the completeness of his sacrifice, then it would change you. It would transform you. The beautiful kindness of God would lead you to repentance to say, no, I hate my sin, but I can't erase it. I need to be forgiven. I need to be changed. I need Jesus in my life. Maybe you're not an able, maybe you're an angry and vengeful David this morning. Have you been wronged and your vengeful heart is just boiling over and you, you take the evil that's been done to you and you internalize it and you put it in a little dark garden in your heart and it grows like a fungus until you, until you can return it to somebody else. But if you would just see the beauty of Christ, if you would see that the mercy of Jesus Christ is perfect and that he has forgiven you of so much you would say oh God how can I refuse to forgive my neighbor when I've been forgiven such a great debt for Jesus sake see Abigail lays down her life in a beautiful act of selflessness and in doing so she rescues her family and changes the heart of David he goes to her and he says hey God sent you to me and you've kept me from doing evil I'm going to grant your request and I'm going to turn back and not commit this act of murder. And over all of it, the justice of God the Father is not going to be mocked. He's loyal to his covenant. Anyone who blesses his covenant people, he's going to bless. Anyone who curses them, he's going to destroy. Notice quickly what Abigail says to David in verse 29. Again, this is her prophetic blessing. She says, quote, if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, The life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Now clearly, Abigail had heard of David's defeat of Goliath, and she's referencing it here, very powerful. And so David relents, but then Abigail goes home to her husband. He's drunk. She can't say anything to him. The next day, finally, he's sober. And she tells him how close he had been to losing everything. And immediately, we're told in verse 37, his heart died within him and he became as a stone. Medically, probably he had a stroke, but on a deeper level, 
uh, God had made Nabal into that stone that, ha- that would be flung as from the hollow of a sling. Do you see what's going on? God's justice over it all is taking place. Ten days later, the Lord strikes him and he dies. Justice is done in God's timing, and David is spared from becoming another Saul. And it's all through the beautiful self-sacrifice and wisdom of Abigail, who so faithfully points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I wonder this morning if you've truly seen the beauty of Christ. We walked out of our house this morning. The air was fresh. The sun had just risen. The sky was blue. The, the life was just kind of humming. You could feel it in the grass and the shrubs from the rain that had just taken place this past week. And all of it spoken into existence by the beautiful word himself. Have you ever stopped to think about the beauty of a being who can create this beautiful world? We arrived at church. We greeted our brothers and sisters, sinners all miserably lost until the Holy Spirit made them born again. People who were devoted to the kingdom of Satan but who have been snatched away and made to serve the Son of God. What a beautiful story of God's grace. We sang together about the love of God whose only Son he gave for us. We lifted our voice together to the one who laid aside his glory and took the crown of thorns. We are God's temple, a beautiful building that serves as the dwelling place of the Spirit of God himself. And and once again, I'm reminded of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, how can we look on such beauty, such selflessness, such love, such sacrifice, and remain a Nabal? How can we remain a vengeful, angry, vindictive David? No, when we really see what Christ has done, when we really see Jesus... We're pulled out of that Saul spiral immediately. So if you're there today, friend, if you're caught in the Saul spiral hurtling toward your own demise, dragging others in your wake, the solution today is not just to be different. It's not to say you got to turn over a new leaf and be a different guy. It's not just to do better. It is to stop looking at all the different things around you, the ugliness and, and, and the, the, the evil around you, and to turn your gaze upwards and look at the things above and look at the beauty of Christ and the beauty of what he's done for us on the cross. I mean, he gave himself and laid aside his glory for us. It reminds me of a song we used to sing when I was in college. My Jesus fair was pierced by thorns, by thorns grown from the fall. Thus he who gave the curse was torn to end that curse for all. Oh, love divine, oh, matchless grace, that God should die for men with joyful grief. I lift my praise, abhorring all my sin, adoring only 